0: If you got your Bible, go ahead and go to Second Timothy, and we are ahead of where I've been preaching now in the growth group. Um, we've gotten ahead of where I am, but we're going to go back, and I'm going to preach on 2 Timothy 3, so if you want to go ahead and turn there. Now I want to know, while you're turning there, if you have a second, glance up here, and I want to know, does anybody remember these movies that is in my generation or older? Raise your hand if you remember these movies. Brad does. <laughs> oh, yeah. These were real popular when uh, I was a kid. Um, these are about the end of the world, okay? So I remember watching... I think it was Left Behind. I think that's the one I remember the best, but I, I remember watching The Omega Code, too. And... I, <laughs> My mom told me, I don't remember this very well, but she told me one morning after I'd seen one of these movies, she found me sitting on the steps in our house, like in my underwear or something. I was little, like six or seven, and she's like, What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm waiting for Jesus to come back. <laughs> I guess I figured I didn't need any clothes, so you know. <laughs> why why have any encumbrances, you know? I'm just gonna shoot straight up there. So all right. Uh and then I I wonder if has anybody ever had this happen? So I woke up one morning and I shared a room with my brother and I look under, I was in the top bunk and I look down, he's not there, it's Sunday morning, and I get out of my bed and my sisters are gone, my dad is gone, there's nobody upstairs, right? And I'm like, did the rapture happen, you know? And my mom is downstairs somewhere, but I'm like calling through the house and uh, she's like, oh yeah, you were sick, we didn't want to take you to church or something like that. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, I was like, how did I get left behind? I thought it was, thought it was good. (laughs) <laughs> so, so if you don't know, these types of movies are talking about a branch of end times theology called dispensationalism. Okay, it's really popular. This branch of end times theology believes things like there's going to be the rise of a one world leader known as the antichrist. They believe that the mark of the beast is being secretly or not so secretly forced upon people or it will be in the near future. They believe that Christians are going to get raptured, and they believe the final battle of Armageddon, where God defeats the devil and his armies. Okay, um, now I'm not today. We're not talking about end time theology. I'm bringing this up because the passage we're about to look at has been kind of a pillar for those who hold to some of dispensationalism. Okay, for in, for the re- so another facet of dispensationalism is that people believe everything is going to get worse and worse and worse morally until God comes back. So basically, we're on a sinking ship. It's going to get worse until just the mass is sticking above the water and Christians are barely holding on, and then God's going to rapture the church out. That's what they believe, okay? Um, And the passage we're studying today has often been used to support that kind of end times theology teaching. Now, again, I'm not trying to tell you which end-time theology to believe. I'm not 100% opposed to dispensationalism, um, although I would not say I hold to it. I don't hold to a lot of dispensationalism. I'll just say that. Um, but yeah, so we're going to look at our passage today and talk about, but I just wanted to say as a little side note for end-time theology, for those of you who are interested in end-time theology and are studying it, I would just encourage you to recognize that nobody really knows what's going to happen in the future, okay? The thing that bothers me is that people will act so confident that they know what all the prophecies are. You know, you'll have whole seminars about, I'm going to reveal to you the book of Revelation, and this means this, and this means this. They'll take every symbol, symbolic picture, and they'll tell you exactly what they think it means. And the truth is, is that good people, when you really begin to look at it, they disagree about what the prophecies mean, and that's okay, you know? I think it's okay for us to realize that there's some mystery, About what's going to happen next. The Bible tells us great principles and things we can know how to live as we approach the end times, but nobody really knows exactly how everything is going to go down, okay? I encourage people to study it, but I also encourage you to be humble, recognize that nobody has it figured out, listen to multiple points of view. I used to be a dispensationalist, hardcore, until I started listening to other points of view and realize maybe there's some other ways to think about some of these scriptures that I never thought about before, right? So our job is to be students of the scriptures, to understand as best we can, but not become arrogant, and definitely don't think we've got it all figured out. So that's what we're going to try to do in 2 Timothy 3, okay? The very first verse is going to bring up some stuff that we are going to try and unpack and figure out, can we understand what's the best understanding of this passage for today, okay? So if you're at 2 Timothy Read along. We're going to read uh, through verse 15, starting in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, and swollen with conceit. They'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, So these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far. Their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love and my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Which, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so right away we're presented with something here that raises the question, what is Paul talking about when he says, in the last days, right? Because it starts out right away, he says, in the last days, difficult times will come. And it seems like, you know, it would seem like, well, of course we know what he's talking about, right? But we have to be careful because this is a personal letter between Paul and Timothy. And so Paul is not necessarily explaining everything he's talking about because Timothy probably already knows what he means when Paul says, in the last days, right? So, for example, let's say you're at an amusement park and you walk by and you hear two people talking and you hear them say, everything is about to end. You're just jumping into the middle of a conversation that they're having, right? Now, you could could assume they're talking about the end of the world. They're saying everything is about to end, right? But they could be talking about how the amusement park is out of money and it's about to go bankrupt, right? You don't know the context of the conversation. And so what we have to do is try and get context to Paul and Timothy's conversation and do our best to figure out what does he mean when he talks about the last days, okay? So we're going to do a fun little side study here. If you want to, if you don't mind flipping around in your Bible, go to Matthew 24. And uh, we're going to look at some things here that are really interesting. I think this will be something you enjoy learning about. Me and Sean are fighting for the screen here. All right, so we're going to Matthew 24, and I want you to read with me verses one through three, okay? It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away. Okay, real quick, just some backdrop. Jesus just had a scathing conversation with the Pharisees, okay? He called them all kinds of names. He told them, you know, basically they're going to hell because they're religious hypocrites, and they are not happy about it, all right? So this is just one of the most intense conversations Jesus had that we have recorded in the Bible. So this, that just happened. And now Jesus left the temple and was going away, verse 1, when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, "'You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down.' As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, "'Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age?' So Jesus makes a really astounding prophecy here, especially to the Jewish people. He says, the days are coming when not one stone of this temple is going to be left on top of another. That's a huge thing to say because the Jews' most sacred site was the temple, okay? So he's just had this crazy conversation. He's walking out of the temple and he says, all of this is going to be thrown down. Not one stone will be left upon another. And so they come to him and they say three questions. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the first question, when are these things going to happen, the destruction of the temple? When is the temple going to be destroyed? That's the first question, right? The second question is, what will be the sign of your coming? All right. Now, to understand that question, N.T. Wright has some really good insight. We're doing a lot of reading today, but keep up. We're, we're studying, all right? Look at this. N.T. Wright says, If you were a Roman citizen, believing that Caesar was the rightful king of the world, but living at some distance from Rome, you would long for the day when he would pay you a state visit. Not only would you see him yourself, but equally importantly, all your neighbors would realize that he really was the world's Lord and master. Much of the Romans' empire was Greek speaking, and the Greek word that they would use for such a state visit, such an appearing or presence, was parousia. That's the Greek word. The same word was often used to describe what happens when a god or goddess did something dramatic, a healing miracle, per se, which was thought to reveal their power and presence. And it's this word, parousia, that the disciples use in verse 3. So when are you going to parousia? When is your royal coming going to happen? When they asked you, this is going to happen. So they speak of three things. Each is important in the long chapter that is now beginning, containing Jesus' answer. They speak of the destruction of the temple. Jesus' parousia, or appearance as king, and the end of the age. The disciples wanted to see him ruling as king with all that would mean, and now they're understanding this is going to include the temple's destruction and indeed the ushering in of God's new age. So they want to know, when are you going to appear as king? When's the temple going to be destroyed, and when are you going to appear as king? I really like how N.T. Wright translates this. Um, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that you're going to appear as king, Perusia, and that the end of the age is upon us? So, you you see, we got to kind of try and step in their shoes. The disciples were expecting a Messiah to come and deliver them from their oppressive enemies, right? Through violence. They're expecting the Messiah to amass an army, to destroy the occupying enemy, and to usher in God's new age of peace and prosperity for the Jewish people right? They didn't understand that the Messiah was going to be doing these things in a totally different way than they thought. So they're asking Jesus, okay, so when's the temple going to be destroyed? When are you going to show up as king? And when are you going to usher in this new age of peace and prosperity? Y'all tracking with me? Those are the questions they're asking. Now, as time goes on, um, let's see. Uh, Oh yeah. Okay. So Jesus is going to reign and defeat their enemies, not in the way they expected. So Jesus begins to answer these questions. Okay. In Matthew 24, we're not going to read it all, but he speaks of famine. He speaks of war, great tribulation, persecution, false prophets. The reason I'm giving you all this backdrop is because some people have used Matthew 24 as end times prophecy, like it's still about to happen. And you got to understand they were asking him what is going to happen like soon, like When are you going to appear as king? When is the new age going to come in, right? And especially this verse helps you understand that Jesus was talking about things that were just about to happen. Look at this. It says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So he talks about war. He talks about a great tribulation like has never happened before. I don't know if any of you guys have ever heard that in the end times, there's going to be the great tribulation, right? That's from Matthew 24. But Jesus says, this generation will not pass away till all these things have happened, including the great tribulation, okay? Um, Now, some people have said, well, generation means a long time. Look at this. In the breakdown of the word, the, the Greek word, is genea. Or how do you say that? Guinea. And it usually means the time ordinarily occupied by each successive generation. People differ about it, but it's usually between 30 and 70 years. Blue Letter Bible says 30 to 33 years. Okay? So Jesus is not saying generation, from what I understand, say most likely. Jesus is not saying generation like this indeterminate amount of time. He's saying this generation. These 40 years or 30 to 70 years is not going to pass away until all these things I've just prophesied come to pass. The destruction of Jerusalem, the war, the famine, the great tribulation, all these things are going to happen before this generation passes away, okay? So here's the answer to the three questions. When will these things happen? The destruction of the temple. What would be the sign that you're going to appear as king and at the end of the age? As After Jesus died and rose from the dead, the apostles began to understand better how Jesus was planning on appearing as king. Jesus conquered sin and death and ascended to heaven. He's the ruler of the universe right now, right? They were expecting him to physically destroy the Romans, but Jesus had a bigger battle he was dealing with. He was defeating the occupying powers and principalities of the spiritual world, right? One day he will return, to set up his earthly kingdom, but the first thing he was doing was setting himself up as king over all hostile spiritual powers. They began to understand that. Jesus is the king because he's conquered sin and death, and now he's brought in a new age by establishing a new covenant. They were expecting a physical age of peace and prosperity. Jesus brought in a spiritual age of peace and prosperity, a new age where now we can be reconciled to God, right? This was the whole mindset shift. They were expecting the Messiah to do things right now with the Romans, Jesus had a bigger picture in the spiritual realm of bringing in a new age and a new covenant and becoming, and setting himself up as king by conquering sin and death. But he still said the temple was gonna be destroyed within a generation, right? Are y'all tracking with me? I know we're really digging in deep here, but uh, I think it's important to understand what he's talking about in 2 Timothy. So when will these things happen? Within a generation, okay? So it is my belief... Personally, and I could be wrong, I understand that, but I think it is most likely that when Paul is talking about in the last days to Timothy, he's talking about the days before the destruction of Jerusalem. You see? Because Jesus said, in this generation, the destruction of Jerusalem is going to happen before this generation passes away. And so when Paul says in the last days, perilous times are going to come, I believe it is most likely that he's talking about the last days before the destruction of Jerusalem. I'll be honest and say there's no way I could prove that 100%. I can't go ask Paul, right? But I think when you study history, because when you look at the early church, they were waiting for the destruction of Jerusalem. They knew it was going to happen. They were expecting it to happen within a generation. Actually, it's really amazing when you study it, there is no record of a single Christian. You got to understand Rome encircle Jerusalem, right? They couldn't go in or out. Jerusalem was under a, a starvation campaign for a long time until finally they got desperate, tried to get out, They and Rome totally decimated Jerusalem. It's, it's probably the worst, and I think I think I could say it is the worst sack of a city that's ever been recorded in history. It's horrible. If you want to have a terrible reading time, go read about the destruction of Jerusalem. It was really, really bad. So But not a single Christian is recorded to have died in the destruction of Jerusalem. Because Jesus said when, uh, I forget exactly how he worded it, but he said, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, let everyone who's in Judea flee to the mountains. And there was a general who came and got very close to Jerusalem. And they were like, okay, we need to get out of here. And all the Christians fled out of Jerusalem. This is historic fact. They fled out of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem was surrounded and not a single Christian died. So they were expecting this to happen. And I believe this is what Jesus was talking about, or I mean, Paul was talking about when he says, the last days, okay? And I just want you guys to know that because people will come in here and say, oh, in the last days, this is talking about the end of the world. And I think if you really look at it, it's, I don't think it is. I think it's talking about something that happened. He's saying, hey, Timothy, in the last days before the destruction of Jerusalem, this is gonna happen, now he might have been talking about the end of the world, but I don't think it's likely. Regardless though, I think that we can learn from this. Even if he was talking about the last days before the destruction of Jerusalem, I think what he talks about in here is really applicable to our day and we can learn from it. So, am I splitting hairs? Maybe, but I think it's good to know and good to learn, right? Anybody else? Anybody else think that way? I do. I want to know what the Bible is talking about. I don't want to just make assumptions, right? So, Now, he says, in the last days, difficult times will come. Let's take another tangent. You all ready? Turn in your Bible to Matthew 13, okay? We're going to talk about something else. Because dispensationalists will say, and again, I'm not against dispensationalism or people who hold to that, but people will say, in the last days, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And they use this passage to support that. They say, look, In the last days, perilous times are going to come. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. We're barely going to be holding on, and then the rapture happens, right? But I would like you to look with me at what Jesus said about his kingdom and how it was going to go down, okay? In Matthew 13, we are going to start in verse 31. Let's see what Jesus said because he's telling parables about his kingdom. He said, this is the way my kingdom is going to be. Look at this. So Jesus says many parables about his kingdom, but two in particular emphasize the fact that the kingdom is going to start very small. Mustard seed was probably one of the smallest seeds they had in their region back then. That's why he calls it the smallest of all seeds. And leaven, you know, doesn't have to be large. And it's, but the idea is that it grows to unprecedented proportions. The leaven fills all of the flour, The mustard seed grows and grows and doesn't stop growing when it should because a mustard seed is like a bush. It becomes a tree, right? It just keeps growing unbelievably. And this corroborates the prophecy that um, was spoken about Jesus. Look at this in Isaiah 9. It says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Look at this. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no what? End, right? And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From when? From this time forth. And how long? Even forevermore, right? Right? So the prophecy about Jesus was that when this son is born, he is going to be the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the mighty God. And when he establishes his kingdom, it will increase... And there will be no end of his increase, and it will start at the time when he establishes his kingdom, and it will go on forevermore. There will never be an end of the increase of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is talking about in these parables. It's going to start out small, but despite all odds, it is going to grow and grow and grow until it fills the whole shebang, until it fills the earth, Right? So this is very different than what dispensationalists will say. They say the kingdom of God is going to shrink and shrink and shrink, and we're just going to be barely holding on. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse, and then God is going to pull us out of it all and then blast everything into oblivion, right? But that is not what Jesus said. He said, it's going to grow. It is going to grow, and it is going to grow. Of the increase of his government and kingdom, there will never be an end. So we got to understand that, that God's kingdom is a growing entity, right? Right now in the earth, God's kingdom is not on the defensive. It is on the offensive. God's kingdom is growing. We can have confidence in that. But this is where it gets weird because look at this. We have all these things in 2 Timothy 3 of all these people who are going to be really bad. And then Paul says this weird thing. He says, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And I believe that Paul is speaking here of a principle that people who embrace evil continually get into deeper and deeper levels of evil. If they refuse to turn to God and reject their sin, their evil will become even more and more debased. And we see this, don't we? You know? Like people who start off with material on the internet that's soft, eventually they go to harder and harder and harder things, right? People who engage in bullying and violence can end up very abusive when they get older, right? Like if you embrace evil and don't reject it, you become more and more entrenched in the evil. So there's this weird dichotomy. We're talking about the kingdom of God is growing. Things are getting better. But then evil, people who embrace evil are getting more and more entrenched in evil. Like how does that work, right? So if you're still in Matthew 13, I think Jesus explains how this is going to go down. So We're going to read another parable. Boy, we're reading a lot today. I hope you guys like to read. (laughs) Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. We're going to read the parable, and then we're going to read the explanation. So he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up, and bore grain, and weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat." into my barn. Let's go to the explanation. Go down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and he went back into his house and his disciples came to him saying, "Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field." And he answered, "The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seeds is the sons, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels." Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. So from what I can understand, best as I can tell, again, I always encourage you to do your own study because I'm trying to learn, but I've got a lot to learn. But it seems to me that there's an important duality that we need to hold in tension in the Bible, okay? The kingdom of God is growing and it will never stop growing. But there's also this dual, dual reality that people who embrace evil are going to be getting more and more entrenched in their evil at the same time, right? So God's kingdom will spread, people will be receiving it. And we see that like in Iran and in China, you know? We see uh, that God is on the move, And it's really interesting because if you look up studies, unbiased studies, there are multiple studies out there that say there's less slavery, less war, and less poverty now in the world than there ever has been before, which is hard to believe. Like you come from a dispensationalist mindset and you're like, no, everything's got to be getting worse, right? But because of the gospel, because of Christians going and starting hospitals and schools and missionaries and all that stuff, there is less poverty and war and slavery in the world now than there ever has been. And that's a wonderful thing. That's the sign, I believe, of the kingdom of God spreading, right? But on the other hand, you see that people who embrace evil are getting more and more avenues to oppress people like China, where they're putting up cameras everywhere, you know, where they're using uh, unrestrained authority over people's lives like we've never seen before. Even your own house isn't safe, um, You know, before, if a man wanted to commit adultery, he'd have to go out and find somebody to do it with. And now all he has to do is get on the internet, you know? Like, there's more avenues and more ways to get entrenched in evil if you want to. But the kingdom of God is on the move in amazing ways, you see? And so, for me, from what I understand, there's this duality where the kingdom of God is going to spread, but people who embrace evil are going to get sucked deeper into deeper levels of evil that we've never seen before, right? And I believe this is important because it gives us a balanced perspective. We are not on a sinking ship of Christianity. God's kingdom is growing and advancing, even here in our country. We are not going to get smaller and weaker and worse until Christianity is barely hanging on. God's kingdom is going to grow. But at the same time, it helps me to recognize that we are in a real battle. And even as God is advancing his kingdom, the devil is out there sowing his seed into the field, right? And he is seeking to entrap men even more than he ever has before. And so we can hold these intention. Not everything isn't just dandy and fine and we're all good and we don't have to worry about anything, but at the same time, we're also not going to hell in a handbasket. Does that make sense? God's kingdom is advancing. We can have confidence in that, but we also recognize there's a real battle going on and the devil is on the move trying to draw people deeper into sin. Does that make sense? Y'all understand that? Now, it's okay if you don't agree with that 100%. I, again, I want to encourage you to study, but I believe that's, from what I can tell, the only balanced way to look at the Bible. There's no way to understand the prophecies and the things Jesus said about his kingdom and also believe everything is just getting worse. There's no way to do that. So I believe there's got to be a balance there. Now, that being said, Paul talks about what was going to happen in the last days before I believe the destruction of Jerusalem, okay? Going back to 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 2, says, "'People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God.' having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Now, we could go through and break down every word, but it's interesting, isn't it? Like when I read this, some of these things pop out to me and I'm like, man, I see this. Like that first one, lovers of self. Like, isn't that true in our age? That's what the devil's trying to draw people into, is to be lovers of themselves. Like it's the social media age, you know? Like I've never seen There's never been a time where people were so consumed with taking pictures of themselves on the daily and posting it on the internet for people to like, you know? Like, people are literally consumed with themselves. They think about themselves. How do I look? How can I make a good social media post, you know? How will this look to people who see it on social media? It's really strange. And that's what the devil's trying to draw people into. He was doing it back then. He's doing it even more so now. Lovers of self... In the King James, that next one, lovers of money, it's translated as covetous. And the next one, proud, is translated as boasters. And I thought that was really interesting because covetous and boasting, people are outwardly boastful about everything they have and everything they are, but inwardly they're covetous and they're never satisfied. Isn't that interesting? And isn't that true of our world? People will brag. And boast about what they have. That's what social media is. You know, it's like a big brag fest. Look at what we did today. You know, with our perfect family. But inwardly, they're never satisfied. They're going around looking at everybody else's social media and feeling jealous. Isn't that interesting? Right. Like I said, we're not going to break. Uh, I don't know if I said this, but we're not going to break down every word. But I actually, when I was studying this, kind of did my own translation. Um, this is not official Bible, so just know that. But I, I kind of was trying to draw the meaning out of each word for myself. Um, my middle name is James, so this is the Luke James Version. It's not the King James Version, okay? <laughs> so this is, what, this is what I saw as I was reading it, okay? And as I looked at the words. People will be consumed with themselves, boasting outwardly, while inwardly never being satisfied, always greedy for more. They are proudly arrogant like the Pharisees, speaking obscene evil about other people and about the God who made them. They disregard their parents. They refuse to give thanks, are not holy. They do not cherish others, even their own family. They refuse to enter into covenant, and they join league with the devil in accusing others. Without moral power, strength, or self-control, They are savage, and they hate loving goodness and those who practice it. Like Judas, they are traitorous. These men are rash. They make smoke. They are lovers and servants of their master, namely their own belly and animalistic urges, rather than lovers and servants of God. These can have a semblance of godliness, legalistic in nature, but they absolutely refuse the transforming power of God's grace. Shun these people. Avoid them. Turn away from them. I think the thing that strikes me the most about this section is that these people are in the church. That's the thing. Because they can have a semblance of godliness, legalistic in nature. That's really, I think, the sense of the word. It's a semblance of godliness. It's legalistic. They hold to rules and things you have to do, but they absolutely refuse the power of God's grace in their lives To change them. And some of us grew up this way, you know? Like we had people who were all legalistic and had all the rules, and yet their lives were totally messed up. They talked a good talk when they had to, and they tried to make other people obey these rules about what you had to dress and how you had to do and this or that. But the way their character was totally messed up, right? These are the kind of people he's talking about, and he says, You need to recognize these people and stay away from them, avoid them. It is sobering to think that some who attend church and put on a good show are in this group, right? And, and I think we have to be careful when we read this part of the passage, not to just think of others primarily, right? I think part of this passage question is, who are you really, right? Because God knows who you are. We can put on a good front. You can fool me and I can fool you. You have no idea what I've done this week. I could come up here and preach a sermon. You, know, have, you have no idea how I've treated my wife or my kid or how I was at work. My wife doesn't even know how I act at work, right? And I can fool people, but you can't fool God. And God knows those who have a semblance of godliness, legalistic in nature, but they refuse the grace of God to change their lives. He knows the people who come and put on a show, but inwardly, they're like ravenous wolves. Now, notice how it says that people who live this way, their foolishness is going to be made plain to everybody, starting in verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. They are corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far their foolishness will be plain to all as it was of those two men. Now, historically, Janus and Jambres were the two magicians that opposed Moses when he came into Egypt to lead Israel out. You know, remember it said the magicians copied what he did, right? So imagine how stupid it was for them to try and fight against Moses. Like how dumb it was for them to try and use their magic to fight against the God who's giving them the power to breathe while they do it, right? Like It's like, oh, you made water into blood. Well, we can do that, you know? And he did something else and they were able to do it too. But about the fourth or fifth uh, plague where God turns up the heat a little bit, they're like, we can't do this, you know? And how stupid it was. They should have just been like, we're not going to fight with God, you know? It was obvious to everyone how foolish and how weak Janus and Jambres were once for the last seven plagues, they couldn't do anything. They could not copy God at all, right? And that's how it's going to be of the final judgment. There'll be people who play both sides of the fence, who try to fit in with the Jesus crowd and with the world. And they're going to look so stupid when they stand before God, right? They're like, they fooled everybody else, but God is going to know everything. And their foolishness is going to be made plain to everybody. The truth will be revealed. And I think it's good for us regularly to remember That at any moment, we're going to stand before God. And God is good and he's loving. I even think some of the things that have been taught about hell have been taught badly. But it's going to be a terrible day for some people. I can't get away from that verse in my mind where Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men to become saved. And I think about that. I'm like, man, we are going to stand before God and everything is going to be laid bare. The truth will be revealed. And I don't know that God's gonna like post it up on a screen and show everybody sitting in the audience all the bad things we've done, but he knows, right? And we will know that he knows. And that like Abraham said, the judge of all the earth is gonna do right. And so for anybody who thinks I'm gonna play both sides of the fence, I'm gonna go home and be abusive to my family or I'm gonna engage in sin that nobody else sees, but I'm gonna try and act good at church, the smartest thing they could do is stop being so stupid and get right with God. Amen? Because God knows. The day will come when each of our hearts, our intentions, our motives, and actions will be laid bare. And as Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. And so here in this passage, after saying all this, Paul draws a line of distinction, okay? And as we get close to the end here, I want to leave you with four action words, and I'd encourage you to circle them in your Bible. Because he here says, Timothy, this is the way people are going to be in the last days. Many will live this way. They're going to reject God. They're going to live hypocritically, even in the church. But you, man or woman of God, here is how you should live. You're going to see this going on all around you, even in the church. But you need to live this way. And he tells Timothy, like Paul was not a hypocrite. He's like, you remember, I love how he starts with this. Cause he says, you remember, you remember how I lived. You remembered my life and my teaching and my faith and my love. You saw me and you know about my persecutions that I endured. And you know that through it all, I was not a hypocrite. I was not fake. My faith is real and I lived for God. You know that. That's the only thing that gives Paul authority to charge Timothy like this to live for God because Timothy saw him, right? If I am not living my faith out before my children, I have no right to expect them to live that way, right? If I'm not living my faith behind closed doors, I have no right to stand up here and lead you guys. Amen? We And so Paul says, you remember, you know who I was and that, and I am calling you to live the same way because I'm about to leave. I'm about to be taken out of here, Timothy, but you're going to stay and I want you to carry on where I left off. So we're going to look at four principles here and I want to encourage you, we're just going to look at them real quickly. I want to encourage you to take these and think about them for your life. For those of us that really want to live for God and not just want to fake it, think about these. Going back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and the word I've circled, if you like to write in your Bible, I encourage you to circle them, maybe even draw a line to the different ones because it's, it's kind of neat how they connect here. But 2 Timothy 2, verse 20 In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as wholly useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, we know we are not saved by works, right? We are saved by accepting God's grace in our lives. He died for us so we could become his children. But now that we are his children, God says here that if we want to be used by him for honorable purposes, if we want to be a vessel that God can look at and say, I can use that person for that, we need to cleanse ourselves of everything that is dishonorable. This is a great question to ask yourself, No matter what it is in every area of your life, is this pure? Is it clean? Is it pleasing to God? Another way I like to do it is um, if I'm about to watch something or do something, I ask myself, if Jesus was doing this with me, would he be happy or would this make him weep? Is this something that Jesus died to deliver me from or is this something that makes Jesus glad? Right? And I want to encourage y'all, whatever... God has been putting on your heart and life. If there's something God has been touching you that's small, you feel like it's small, and He's telling you you need to let it go, you need to stop doing that. I want to encourage you to get serious about that. Because the Bible says if you're faithful in the little things, you'll be faithful in the much. We like to think, well, I wouldn't, I'm just doing this little thing over here, but if something big happened, I would, I would handle that right, you know, but this is not a big deal, right? But that's not the way it works. If you're faithful in the little, you're faithful in much. If you're unfaithful in little, You're unfaithful in much. And so when God wants to use somebody, he'll go in and start poking the little things and he'll say, hey, will you let this go? This isn't good. This is dirty. Are you willing to lay that down, right? And because if we'll obey him there, then when he calls us to something big and difficult, we've already got the character foundation. He knows he can trust us, right? Uh, Guys, and I I just want to get on a little soapbox and look, I hate legalism and I can't tell anybody where they should draw the line. But I want to encourage you. You need to be careful what you watch and what you entertain yourself with. Because, I mean, like I said, I can't tell you these movies are good and these movies are bad. I would never want to try that. And maybe it's different for different people. I don't know. But can we really be pure and clean when we devour for entertainment, for entertainment, movies and videos that revel in the cesspool of violence and sexual immorality that God hates? When we're watching movies that for entertainment, I'm not talking about movies that are trying to show historical stuff, but for entertainment, the violence, and the sexual immorality, it's all just for people to enjoy for fun. Can we really be clean and pure before God if we're enjoying that, if we're just reveling in that? I don't think so, and I, again, I, I struggle with it too. Sometimes I'm like, man, God, should I watch this? Should I not? I just wanna be pure, you know? I don't wanna enjoy anything that God hates that put him on the cross. And I think that should be our heart, that God, whatever is impure, I don't want it. It's something we have to get with God. And and I think it's important too, because the greatest danger in media is not even what we see or what we consume. This is what I think is. The greatest danger is how these medias change the way we think and view the world, right? Like something I was talking with Katie about the other night is every, this is just an example, but every movie where there's a bad guy how do the good guys beat the bad guy? They beat him with violence, right? It's like they somehow get a super suit that's strong enough to blast the bad guy and he's dead, yes, right? And now the good guys win, right? But that is the total opposite of how Jesus did it. Right. And it's so easy for us to get so used to that Avengers, Spider-Man, Batman way of, of good beating evil that we don't even think about it. But when you look at that, that is not how God wants us to beat our enemies. We win over our enemies by loving them and praying for them when they persecute us. I'm not saying we just need to be a doormat. There's a good place to draw boundaries. But beating them by violence is not the ultimate that God wants. But it's so easy to just think, yeah, they showed them. And that's just one example. You know, you could do the same with relationships, justice, justice. Life values, all, oh, and so I just want to encourage y'all. This is my soapbox. This is something I'm passionate about, and I feel like maybe could be better done in a church. We need to be careful about what we watch, and ask ourselves, "Is this what God wants?" And this goes to so many areas of life. Cleanse yourself. Ask yourself, "Is this pure and pleasing to God?" Here's the next one. Flee. Second Timothy two twelve. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I used to think when I was younger that this said flee lust. But it doesn't just say lust. It says flee youthful passions, right? And there's all kinds of passions of youth. There's a desire for the acceptance by the world. There's a temptation to prioritize wealth and comfort. Our youthful passions lead us to make decisions out of impulse rather than wisdom. And so we have these defensive, negative words, if you will. Cleanse yourself and flee. Get away from these things. When you see something in you that's not wise, that's not pure, that's impulsive and sensual, get it away. Flee. Get out of there, right? But the Bible isn't just defensive. And I love this. This is what's so cool about this passage here. Like we're not just supposed to run away from everything bad, right? Right? Like, we're supposed to pursue something. So, look in the same verse. It says, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That word pursue, it's used here in Philippians as well, where Paul's using a running analogy and he says, I press on. I press on. When you're in that last bit of the, of the sprint, you know, and it's down to the wire and you got the other runners around you. You are pressing, you're leaving everything on the track to get the goal, right? One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward. I press on toward the goal for the prize. So we are called not just to, like, it's not enough for just us just to be like, hey, I'm going to try and be a goody two shoes and stay away from stuff, you know? Like our life goal and pursuit is to become this, righteous, full of faith, love, and peace. Like that should be our goal. Like that's the most important thing in our life is to pursue these things. God, how do I become more righteous? How do I walk with you with more faith? How do I love people more? How do I have more peace in my life? That's what we need to pursue. And pursue it hard. Make it your ambition to become the person God wants you to be. And then the last one is continue. Continue. In 2 Timothy 3, uh, I think it's 14, or 13, starting in verse 12 of 2 Timothy 3, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. How from your childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So here you have it, the four action words. The negative is to cleanse and flee from the things of this world that are evil. But not just to be in a static state where you're trying to keep things away, but you're running away from those things and you're pursuing righteousness, pursuing, becoming everything that God wants you to be, and you're standing firm. It makes me think of that verse in Ephesians where it's like, put on the armor of God so that when the evil day comes, you may stand. And having done all, to stand. When everything comes at you, when the world is going to hell in a handbasket, at least around you, that you continue in the things that you know are true and that God has called you to. And man, Timothy was going to need that, right? eventually dying as a martyr to an angry mob. Timothy was going to need to continue when things got rough. So this is what we need to make this our priority, right? I guess this is what I wanted to leave you guys with. Whatever the last days are going to be, whether, they're, whether we're heading towards the Antichrist and you know the One World Order, or whether some of that has been misunderstood, we don't know what's going to happen. The point is, whatever's going to happen, this is what we need to focus on, right? That however the world goes, this is how we as Christians are living. That we're separating ourselves from everything evil and we are pursuing God, standing in the truth. Amen? So, just to wrap it up. Okay, you can come on up. There's a lot of evil in the world, even though God's kingdom is expanding, right? People are liars are hypocrites, even among people who attend church. But we know that Jesus is king. We have a hope that goes beyond the grave. And so as God's kingdom continues to expand, even as people around us refuse God's grace, even as they get sucked deeper into filth, I would just hope that each of us here would leave here saying, God, I want to commit to being the person you've called me to be in heart and action, right? If there's anywhere in my life, God, that I am not pure or cleansed, I wanna get that out of my life today. And if there's anywhere in my life where I've been getting distracted in my priorities, I wanna focus again on what's important. And I believe God will help us to do that. So let's pray. Whatever God may be speaking to you, I just encourage you to Take it to heart, and don't resist, God. Don't push God away when God is speaking to you. Let God do what he wants to do in your life. Lord, I thank you for being with us, and thank you, God, that you have a purpose for us. Thank you, Lord, that we have a hope, even as the world crumbles and evil people become worse and worse, your kingdom grows. Lord, I want to be a part of that. I believe so many of us in here want to be a part of that, God. We want to be your people. We want to be your bride. We want to be your pure church, God. So Lord, I pray you'd help us. I know that you are. Help those of us in here who are struggling to let go of what they know is hurting them. Help them, God. Lord, help us to be pure. There's areas of our life, God, that we're compromising and it's hurting our spiritual walk. Show that to us, God. Help us to let it go. Whether it's gossip or anything, God. Lord, I pray you'd help us to be the people in the last days who are chasing after you and standing for the truth. Jesus' name. Amen.